All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories number 26 for May 2021. Encore, William Wood, Marianne Lee, Frank Mayo, and Wedgwood Noel. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 50 minutes or so to learn about four people who made their life on the stage or screen and were very popular in their day, but are nearly forgotten now. William Wood, who started as an actor, but soon moved to managing Philadelphia theaters. Mary Ann Lee, whom many believe to be America's first professional ballerina. Frank Mayo, an actor who became beloved through more than 3,000 performances as Davy Crockett. And Wedgwood Noel, who produced or acted in more than 300 plays before moving to Hollywood and acting in more than 300 movies over a long career. William Wood and Marianne Lee are interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, while Frank Mayo and Wedgwood Noel are at West Laurel Hill. I think you will enjoy their stories this month on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Encore. I think everyone who lives in Philadelphia knows that the Walnut Street Theater at 9th Street is the oldest continuously operating theater in the English-speaking world and the oldest theater in the United States. It opened in 1809. It was originally called the Olympic Theater and was constructed as a circus for equestrian performances. But the Walnut was far from the first theater in Philadelphia. The first theatrical entertainment by a regular company in Philadelphia was on the 15th of April, 1754. It was in a building on Water Street at the south corner of the first alley leading to the wharf north of Pine Street. The play was The Fair Penitent by Nicholas Rowe. Lewis Hallam, 1714 to 1756, was the manager of this company. Hallam's actor father, Thomas, had been killed by a fellow actor during a performance in London in 1735. In 1759, three years after Lewis's death, the Hallam group moved to the Theatre on Society Hill at the southwest corner of South Street and Vernon Street, which was then on the outskirts of the city. In November 1766, the new theater on South Street opened, but the revolution put an end to performances, so the company embarked for Jamaica. 
while the British Army held possession of the city, their officers gave amateur performances in this theater, quote, for the laudable purpose of raising a supply for the widows and orphans of those who have lost their lives in His Majesty's service, end quote. After the British left the city, Lewis Hallam Jr., 1740-1808, became the manager. He is believed to be the first American actor to perform in blackface in 1769. Now, in 1792, there was a theater in the Northern Liberties. It stood at Front Street above Poole's Bridge, directly back of Noah's Ark Tavern. It was not highly thought of. One contemporary critic called the acting contemptible. In 1793, Lewis Hallam's cousin, Thomas Wignell, 1753-1803, arrived from England with a strong core of players. And the new company started in the winter of that same year in the new theater, just then completed at Chestnut Street near the corner of 6th Street. For the next 27 years, this company presented theatrical performances of an extremely high degree of excellence. This was also the first time in America that a theater was lit by gas. It became known as the Chestnut Street Theater. William Burke Wood, whose name was synonymous with the Chestnut Street Theater for its formative years, was born on 26 May 1779 in Montreal, Quebec the son of a New York goldsmith who had gone to Canada before the British occupation of New York. He returned about 1784. His mother was Thomason English. After a brief private schooling, liberally supplemented from his earliest years by frequent visits to the theaters, he was apprenticed as a clerk in a counting house at age 12. But he was sickly, and he was sent to the West Indies for a year for his health. He came back no richer, but with more attitude, and was briefly jailed for debt. In 1798, at age 19, according to a biographer, he was, quote, feeble in health, indolent, little habituated to theatrical studies, indifferent as to voice, and extremely young, end quote. No matter, he desperately wanted to be an actor, especially after encountering an actor while in debtor's prison. After disincarceration, he journeyed to Annapolis, Maryland, and managed to secure a place in Thomas Wignell's troupe. Wignell was apparently an old family friend. He had taken his actors out of the city to avoid the 1798 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. Wood made his debut in Annapolis on 26 June 1798 as George Barnwell in George Lillo's 1731 tragedy, The London Merchant, also known as the history of George Barnwell. It was a bad start, as Wood himself relates. He was not a good dramatic actor. The sickly youth was unsuccessful in his other tragic roles that season. A second sojourn in Jamaica seemed to restore his powers, and he came back to play Dick Dowless in The Heir-in-Law, a popular 1797 five-act comedy by George Coleman the Younger. Now he had found his true forte, genteel comedy. That same year, he picked up a role in Philadelphia in Thomas Morton's 1798 comedy play, Secrets Worth Knowing. 
He was now getting acting work in Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and in the summer at Alexandria, where Wignell's famous company now filled regular engagements. Wood grew steadily in both skill and public favor, and he started assuming theater jobs away from acting. Before his 23rd birthday, he was treasurer of the company's Chestnut Street Theater, which was its headquarters. When Wignell died in February 1803, he was interred at St. Peter's Episcopal Churchyard in Philadelphia. He left the control and the property to his widow and to composer and musician Alexander Rheinagel. Wood became assistant to the acting manager William Warren, 1767 to 1842, and was dispatched to England in search of new actors. When Wood returned from England, he began his long collaboration with Warren, and the company prospered. On 30 January 1804, William Burke Wood married Juliana Westray, 1788-1838, a British-born actress. The couple had four children, one of whom was William Whiteman Wood, who grew up to be an American journalist, businessman, naturalist, and poet based in Macau and Canton, China. When Reinagle died in 1809, Wood's Philadelphia friends supplied him the means to buy from Warren an equal share in the company's property and management. Following a debut at the Park Theater in New York on 12 September 1810 as DeVelmont in William Diamond's The Foundling of the Forest, then his best role, Wood rejoined his former chief Warren in the autumn of 1810. The new partnership lasted for 16 years, raising the theaters under its control, particularly the Chestnut Street, to international eminence despite many obstacles. And with numerous English players in the company and many English plays in the repertory, it managed to steer a safe path through the dangerous years of the War of 1812 and the subsequent economic depression. Then, in April 1820, while the troupe was away at Baltimore, the gas-lit Chestnut Street Theater burned to the ground, uninsured, carrying with it the precious scenery, machinery, wardrobe, library, music, lights, and all. Undaunted, the partners leased the Olympic, that is, the Walnut, and went on playing until a second old Drury could be opened in 1822. One item under their walnut management was the first professional stage appearance of Edwin Forrest as young Norval in John Holmes' 1756 tragedy, Douglas. The new Chestnut Street Theater reopened 2 December 1822 with Richard Sheridan's 1777 comedy of manners, School for Scandal. Warren played Sir Peter Teasel and Wood played Charles Surface. In 1826, the 16-years partnership between the two managers was terminated by Wood's withdrawal. And on 1 October 1828, he took over management of the Arch Street Theater between 6th and 7th Streets in Philadelphia, then just built. But this enterprise was not successful, and the rest of his theatrical career was divided between management and acting. The Arch Street Theater, of course, eventually became successful. It was one of the Philadelphia triumvirate of theaters, along with the Chestnut and the Walnut. 
On 18 November 1846, Wood retired from the stage with a benefit at the Walnut Street Theater. In 1855, Wood published his Personal Recollections of the Stage, an indispensable if slightly egotistical account of his associations over 40 years. His wife, Juliana, is mentioned four times in this 400-plus page autobiographical work. Born in England, Juliana Westray, 1778 to 1838, made her dramatic debut in Boston in 1797. In 1803, she joined the Philadelphia company of William Burke Wood, whom she married in 1804. A preeminent actress for the next 20 years, she was best known for her performances in Macbeth, Sir Walter Scott's Heart of Midlothian, and School for Scandal. I cannot find where she is interred. Juliana's sister, Ellen Westray, was in her day more famed than Juliana. William Burke Wood, actor, director, producer, manager, entrepreneur, died on 23 September 1861 at his Philadelphia home on Sansom Street. He had outlived Juliana by 23 years. He was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section L, Plot 129, and has a moderate obelisk marker. The inscription reads, quote, Erected by admiring friends to the memory of William B. Wood, comedian, in testimony of his rare talents as an artist and a man. Born May 26, 1774, died September 23, 1861. End quote. Ballet originated in the Italian Renaissance courts of the 15th and 16th centuries. Under Catherine de' Medici's influence as queen, it spread to France, where it developed even further. As an aside, the last de' Medici, Charles Eucharist de' Medici Sejou, M.D., 1867-1929, is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. More about him in June. In the 17th century, ballet's popularity in France increased and it transformed into a professional art. Ballet performances started to incorporate challenging acrobatic movements that could only be performed by highly skilled entertainers. John Durang, 1768-1822, born in York, Pennsylvania, was the first native-born American to win widespread recognition as a dancer of any style. His family moved to Philadelphia in 1779 and acquired property on 2nd Street. Where Durang learned to dance is unclear as there were no official dance instructors in Philadelphia at the time. In 1774, the Continental Congress had passed a resolution which strongly recommended closing all places of amusement. Theaters, public balls, and dances were frowned upon. British actors hastened home before the war began and only began reappearing in 1784 when Lewis Hallam came to Philadelphia. 
As mentioned before, Hallam got access to the Southwark Theater. He started presenting lectures, and I put that in quotation marks because they were entertainments disguised as education. In December of 1784, John Durang was introduced as a dancer performing a peasant's dance. He was 17 years old and had apparently undergone no formal training in dance. Durang traveled with the troupe to New York City and other cities before next appearing in Philadelphia in June 1788. There was still active opposition to the theater and a petition signed by Quakers was presented to the Philadelphia Assembly in July protesting the, quote, schools of seduction and, quote, resorts of the licentious, that is, the playhouses. John Durang had many children. Virtually all of them followed him into the theater. A daughter, Julia, married Francis R. Godey, brother of Louis Godey, editor of Godey's Ladies' Book. A son, Charles Durang, 1794-1870, is probably the best known, as he wrote the invaluable History of the Philadelphia Stage from 1752 to 1854. Charles married a young British actor and dancer named Mary White, 1798-1880, and they danced together at Vauxhall Gardens in Philadelphia in the summer of 1819. Vauxhall Gardens, which extended from Broad to Juniper and Walnut to Sampson, had opened as a pleasure garden in 1814. If John were buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, I would probably do a podcast just about him and his family. But at his request, he was interred at St. Mary's Catholic Churchyard on South 4th Street in Philadelphia. Francis Godey is buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery, but I could not find Julia Durang Godey's burial place. Surprisingly, I can find no record for the burial of Charles Durang, but his wife, Mary White Durang, is interred in a plot that literally hugs Ridge Avenue in Laurel Hill South, Section 11, plots 30 and 31. She's about midway between Lehigh and Huntington. Now this brings us to Marianne Lee, who is considered by many to be America's first professional ballerina. Her primary competition for this role was Augusta Maywood, a year her junior and also from Philadelphia. Marianne was born in Philadelphia in July 1824 and appeared as a child actress in most of the theaters of the city starting when she was two years old. Her father, a bit player known about town in many productions, died when she was five. Mary Ann made her debut as a dancer at the Chestnut Street Theater on 30 December 1837 as Fatima in The Maid of Kashmir. The principal role was danced by Augusta Maywood. This set up a rivalry between the two dancers for the next several years. They both studied under French ballet teacher P.H. Hazard, a one-time member of the corps de ballet of the Paris Opera. Audiences loved both of them, which even fueled their competition more. Newspaper reports were ecstatic. They leave the impression that Augusta was the more brilliant dancer, but Marianne had the better stage presence and charisma. The Maid of Cashmere played to sold-out houses for more than five weeks. 
On 5 January 1838, their manager, Robert Campbell Maywood, announced a performance for the benefit of his stepdaughter, Augusta. The audience demanded that Marianne also be granted a benefit and pressured Maywood until he set it up for 12 January, albeit reluctantly complaining that since he had paid for Marianne's dancing lessons, he deserved the profit to be reaped from her talent. The next day, the Philadelphia Saturday Courier carried two complete criticisms of the performance, one pro-Maywood, one pro-Lee. In February, La Petite Augusta was whisked off to New York for a successful debut, while Marianne chose to remain in Philadelphia with her mother. Augusta returned to Philadelphia in March, and the two appeared yet again in a Maywood production called The Dewdrop, Augusta in the title role, Marianne in the role of Flora. The ballet was a huge success and ran until early April. Later in the spring, the entire Maywood family departed for Europe. Augusta never returned to live in the United States. She died in 1876 at age 50 and is buried in Milan, Italy. In the autumn, Marianne Lee transferred her allegiance to the Walnut Street Theater. And on 13 September 1838, she danced the role of Queen Lily of the Silver Stream in a newly written ballet called The Lily Queen. When not dancing, she played other roles, anything from Little Pickle to Albert in William Tell. On 12 June 1839, at age 15, Marianne Lee made her New York debut in La Bayadere. A few days later, a new ballet called The Sisters was produced for her, an original American ballet not based on one of the latest from Paris or London. A month later, U.S. President Martin Van Buren attended a performance, and Marianne Lee danced the Kachuka for him. The Kachuka is a dance in 3-4 or 3-8 time, similar to the Bolero. It usually involves castanets. And the next year, P.T. Barnum hired her to dance at his New York Vauxhall Gardens, a different Vauxhall Gardens from the one in Philadelphia. Other roles came her way, and excellent reviews generally followed. September 1842, she danced in support of Madame Lecomte in the first American performance of Robert Le Diable, an unearthly ballet featuring dead nuns dancing in a deserted cemetery. And on 15 September 1843, she undertook one of the most difficult roles in the ballet repertoire, that of Giulietta in Aubert's opera La Mouette de Portici, translated into English for the occasion as The Dumb Girl of Genoa. She turned 20 in 1844, and she was exhausted. She had been studying and dancing almost continuously since she was 14 years old and had been on stage since she was two. She had a very loyal public, which called her Our Mary Ann, but she needed to break. In November, she and her mother sailed to Paris, where she was admitted to the Ballet School of the Paris Opera to study under the great Jean Corrale. When she returned to New York in September 1845, she brought with her not only a vastly improved technique, but a thorough knowledge 
of the authentic versions of Giselle, Taglioni's ballet La Fille de Danube, and Carlotta Grisi's Le Jolie Fille de Gand. Although well known in Europe, not one of them had yet been performed in the United States. In Philadelphia, she spent two months preparing for the debut of La Jolie Fille de Gand, which debuted at the Arch Street Theater on 24 November 1845. And a week later, on 1 December, she presented La Fille de Danube, which had only been seen in the United States at the French Opera in New Orleans, but never before on the East Coast. At the close of the Philadelphia engagement, Marianne gathered a small company consisting of her favorite male lead, George Washington Smith, and six other dancers, and she toured the principal cities of the United States. She trained local talent for the ensembles and was able to present ballets that called for large casts, even though she was only touring with eight people. It was during a run at the Howard Athenaeum in Boston that Marianne Lee and George W. Smith danced Giselle on 1 January 1846. This was the first American production of this long-lived ballet, now considered a classic. Three months later, they danced it again in New York City and received excellent reviews. Quote, The accomplished, modest, and beautiful American danseuse, it is a pleasure to every well-organized mind. Miss Lee enacted Giselle with a beauty, charm, elegance, and grace that cannot be described, and we will not attempt it. Marianne Lee and her little company toured extensively in the 1846-47 season, where she also introduced the polka, which she had brought from Paris with her other importations. In December of 1846, Marianne fell ill while performing in New Orleans. She was obliged to cancel several performances. Although she seemed to recover, the strain of touring caught up with her, and she reluctantly announced her coming retirement. In May of 1847, Marianne Lee gave a series of farewell performances in her native Philadelphia. Her last appearance was on 18 June at the Arch Street Theater. She was 24 years old. Also in 1847, she married William F. Van Hook, 1826-1889, a dry goods merchant from Philadelphia. They had three children. She returned to the stage under the name of Mrs. Van Hook for a few scattered performances in 1852-1853. Other than doing some teaching, nothing is really known of her later years until her death in Philadelphia at age 74 in January of 1899. She is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in the South Segment, Section 3, Lot 114. Her grave was unmarked until May of 2011, when Marianne's biographer Barbara Malinsky and the Friends of Laurel Hill Cemetery raised the funds to purchase a beautiful granite stone with a photo of a lithograph of Marianne attached. Two dancers from the Pennsylvania Ballet were present in costume at the dedication.
Those acquainted with Lee noted her sweet personality, her responsibility to her widowed mother, her modesty, and her loyalty. Critics praised her graceful manner as well as the dogged determination that led her to study the greatest ballets of the romantic repertoire at their source and to become America's first authentic interpreter of Giselle. Had she not retired in her early 20s, our Marianne might be remembered as one of the 19th century's greatest ballerinas. This year, famed American actor Hal Holbrook, 1925 to 2021, died at age 95. Although he was accomplished in many roles, most people knew him through the years as Samuel Clemens in the delightful award-winning one-man play, Mark Twain Tonight. For more than 60 years, Holbrook trod the boards as that saintly curmudgeon. It will remain his legacy. Now, the custom of an actor adopting one character as his own did not originate with Holbrook. In 19th century America, Joseph Jefferson, 1829 to 1905, became best known for playing the role of Rip Van Winkle for 40 years. Edwin Booth, 1833 to 1893, performed the role of Hamlet countless times over his 40-plus year career. DeWolf Hopper, 1858-1935, played in dozens of dramas and operettas over a 57-year career, but he would probably be forgotten today were it not for his estimated 10,000 interpretations of Casey at the Bat. Frank Mayle, who was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, was another actor who made his fame and fortune on playing one character, Davy Crockett. David Davy Crockett, 1786 to 1836, was an American folk hero, frontiersman, soldier, and politician. He represented Tennessee in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1827 to 1831, where he vehemently opposed many of the policies of President Andrew Jackson, especially the Indian Removal Act. He was re-elected in 1833, but then narrowly lost in 1835, prompting his angry departure to the Mexican state of Tejas. In early 1836, the year that Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded, Crockett took part in the Texas Revolution and was likely executed at the Battle of the Alamo after being captured by the Mexican army. Frank Mayo was born on Essex Street in Boston, on 18 April 1839. His birth name was Frank McGuire. He was seized with an adventurous spirit in his teens and headed west with the idea of making his fortune in the gold mines of California. But to make ends meet, he went on stage. His debut was as the waiter in Raising the Wind at the American Theater in San Francisco in July 1856. He was 17 years old. Later, he appeared with the stock company at the McGuire Opera House, 
but incurred the displeasure of lead actor Junius Brutus Booth Jr. and was dismissed. Mayo had misunderstood a cue and shouted hurrah at the top of his lungs while the rest of the cast was silent. This set the audience into an uproar and the curtain had to be lowered. Booth personally fired him for spoiling the scene. He stayed out west with various companies for nine years, arriving in New York City in July 1865. His reputation preceded him, and he was asked to become leading man for the season at the Boston Theater, where he played the role of Badger in the streets of New York. During the rest of the season, he played Richard III, Iago, Othello, Ingomar, and Don Cesar de Bazan. Junius Brutus Booth Jr. became manager of the theater the next year, but all was forgiven as he secured Mayo for another season. It was in this season that Charles Keene, 1811-1868, made his last visit to America and played Cardinal Wolsey to Mayo's Henry VIII. Mayo expanded his repertoire, playing first Shakespearean roles and then various popular plays of the standard drama, including Virginius, Richelieu, The Robbers, The Three Guardsmen, also known as The Three Musketeers, The Marble Heart, Cadet La Pearl, Damon and Pythias, Jack Cade, The Romance of a Poor Man, and The Streets of New York. In 1872, Mayo was manager of the Rochester Theater when playwright Frank Murdoch, whose birth name was Hitchcock, sent him the script for Davy Crockett or Be Sure You're Right, Then Go Ahead. Mayo produced it in the sixth week of the seasons. Critics were not impressed. Of the play, little can be said. The chances are Mr. Mayo will never play it again. End quote. Mayo determined to play the piece until he was satisfied either of its failure or success. He ended up playing it more than 3,000 times over the next 20 years. In the two decades that he played the role, he became so identified with the part that Frank Mayo was often lost sight of by the public, who literally identified him as Davy Crockett. Playwright Murdoch did not live long enough to see the success of his play. While working at the Arch Street Theater in Philadelphia in November 1872, he wrote to Mayo after receiving horrid reviews for his follow-up work, Bohemia, and said, they have struck home. Two days later, Murdoch was dead of brain fever. Mayo thought a good deal of Davy Crockett. He once said, quote, I would rather have written the play with all its crudeness than to have acted it ten times better than I have done, end quote. The play became generally received as an excellent example of an American romantic drama, and it is still occasionally performed. In a 19 June 1880 story, the New York Mirror told a story involving mail. During Davy Crockett, stagehands were in the habit of scattering dry leaves around the stage for the first act of Mayo's performance. To recycle the leaves when the curtain went down, they swept them onto center stage's trapdoor to be dropped and bagged. During a Detroit performance, Mayo hurried to cross the stage after the first act and strode through the pile. Instantly, he disappeared, dropping down 18 feet. 
one of the troopers could not resist remarking that he, quote, took his leave rather suddenly, end quote. Mayo was not amused. During an interview in the late 1890s, Mayo said, My head is getting gray, and every hair is a crocket. This is a special night, the 3,000th one. I've played it so long that the public has identified me with it, and the demand is so strong that I am essentially prohibited from producing anything else. In one sense, I am regarded as the real Davy Crockett. In nearly every town I visit, I am invited to hunting parties, when the truth is that I never shot a gun in my life. Buffalo killing expeditions have been organized for my benefit. They are surprised to learn that I have neither the experience nor a taste for that sort of sport. I am passionately fond of appearing in other settings of legitimate drama. I was the principal supporting actor for Julia Dean Hayne, American actress, in all the classical characters in which she appeared. I favor variety, so consequently the continual playing of one character is becoming monstrous to me. The late Davy Crockett is very popular, but it exasperates me to be compelled to play it all the time. End quote. Uh, one day in the winter of 1894, Mayo was walking along Broadway in New York when he met his old friend, Mark Twain. Frank told Mark that he was looking for a play on an American subject, and Mr. Clements said, What's the matter with Puddinghead Wilson? It was raining. The two men stepped up in a doorway and talked over the story, which was then running in the Century magazine, and of which Mayo had actually read two installments. The result of that chat was that the author gave the actor permission to go ahead and make what he liked out of the story. Puddinghead Wilson is the story of the two sons of Judge Driscoll, the chief citizen of Dawson's Landing, Missouri, in the early years of the 19th century. Tom is his legal heir and the child of his wife. Chambers is his child by slave girl Roxy. When Driscoll threatens to sell Roxy's son, she switches the babies in their cradles. The two boys grow up with each other's identities, creating a situation both ironic and ultimately tragic. Wilson is a lawyer with a hobby of collecting fingerprints who received his unflattering nickname when he told a joke that the local citizenry took seriously, therefore thinking him an idiot. The show ran for 48 weeks on Broadway, with Mayo appearing in 307 performances before taking it on the road. Frank and his wife Mary, who was not an actor, had four children. Their son Edwin also became an actor. Their daughter, Eleanor Nellie Mayo, who was raised in a convent, became an actress and a famed opera singer briefly in the early 1890s, until she was spotted by Colonel James Elverson, Jr., owner and publisher of the Philadelphia Inquirer, during an appearance at the Chestnut Street Theater. They married in April 1895, and Eleanor stepped away from her career on the stage. I talked about her at length in podcast number 12, All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, A Night at the Opera. During the first week of June 1896, Mayo and his troupe were performing in Denver. All week, he was complaining of severe chest pain, but he went on every night. 
He played the role for the last time on Friday night, 6 June 1896. On Sunday evening, his troupe boarded the train for Omaha, where Mayo was to play the role at the Creighton Theater. Mayo and his friend Roland Reed sat in the smoking compartment of the sleeper when Frank said, Roland, I cannot sleep in a stuffy berth. I will sit here all night. And somewhere between Denver and Omaha, on the overnight train, Frank Mayo died with his elbow on the windowsill, face in hand, leaning back against the cushion. During the run in Denver, Mayo had received word that his wife Mary was extremely ill back in Philadelphia. It was his intent to go back there after the Omaha tour. Mary died at their home at Sixth and Diamond in October 1896. They are both interred in a mausoleum at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Edgewood Section, Lot 299. Have you ever heard of the fictional character Arsène Lupin? He was a gentleman thief and a master of disguise created in 1905 by French writer Maurice Leblanc. Lupin was featured in 17 novels and 39 novellas. In the 1970s, there were five authorized sequels. The books were published at a time when motion pictures were becoming very popular and the first silent Arsène Lupin movie was filmed in the United States in 1908. Some of the later films featured such familiar names as John Barrymore in 1932, Melvin Douglas in 1938. Barrymore, 1882 to 1942, is buried in Mount Vernon Cemetery, which is literally just across Ridge Avenue from Laurel Hill Cemetery at Lehigh Avenue. One of the best-known Arsène Lupin films is 813, a six-reeler made in 1920. Directed by Charles Christie and Scott Sidney and written by Scott Darling, it featured Wallace Beery in the role of Major Parberry and a busy Philadelphia actor named Wedgwood Noel as Lupin. Harry Hawkins Noel was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in 1878 to Herbert Wedgwood Noel and Elizabeth Langley Noel. He was a direct descendant of Josiah Wedgwood, master of ceramic art in England, and of Sir Roger Noel and of Increase Noel, first secretary of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. After attending schools in Boston and Worcester, he attended and graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. In 1898, he appeared as a tambo at the annual minstrel show of the Philadelphia Bicycle Club, where his featured song was, Just Tell Them That You Saw Me. In 19th century minstrel shows, white men corked up in blackface and played defined roles. The interlocutor was a man of apparent sophistication who served as master of ceremonies while Tambo and Bones, named for the instruments that they played, were the comic relief. In 1900, Noel is listed as assistant stage manager for a company in New York performing Quo Vadis. At some point before 1903, he began using the stage name Wedgwood Noel 
and started appearing in theater reviews as someone, quote, who is well-known to Philadelphia theatergoers, end quote. He received an excellent review from the Philadelphia Inquirer in the role of Joe Rubens in a four-act melodrama entitled Rachel Goldstein at the National Theater, 824 to 836 Chestnut Street. A 1911 article in the Inquirer mentions the reporter running into him and his wife on the boardwalk where he was recovering from rheumatism. The unidentified author calls Noel, quote, a popular member of stock companies in Philadelphia. By 1912, he was back at the forest playing Masala in Ben-Hur, again identified with stock companies in this city. His Wikipedia page says that he produced 144 plays during his stage career, but gives no reference, and I cannot find further information on the web. His career in film is much better documented, starting in 1915, and he appeared as a bit player in more than 140 productions. A 1923 newspaper article says that, quote, in 15 years on the stage, he has played 300 parts. In half as many years in motion pictures, he has played more than 300 parts, end quote. It's possible in 1919 alone, he was in at least nine movies. Adele, The Lord Loves the Irish, Diane of the Green Van, The Man Who Turned White, The Man Beneath, A Man's Fight, Her Purchase Price, Kitty Kelly MD, and The Beauty Market. Among his co-stars were Sesu Hayakawa, John Gilbert, Dustin Farnham, and Wallace Beery. His break came when he was awarded the role of Arsène Lupin in the 1920 movie 813. He shined in the role, and on 21 January 1921, the Los Angeles Evening Express reported, He is Happy Star. He entered into an agreement with Joseph Menchin, Jr. of the Celebrated Authors Society of New York and acquired production rights to 18 Arsène Lupin stories by Maurice LeBlanc and 20 Raffles stories by E.W. Horning. A.J. Raffles is a fictional character created in 1898 by E.W. Horning, brother-in-law to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Raffles is in many ways an inversion of Sherlock Holmes. He is a gentleman thief. Raffles was the lead character in one novel and 26 short stories. The contracts call for a minimum guarantee of $20,000 for each and every story. The entire deal involved some $750,000 of material. It was Noel's goal to produce four films annually. It never happened. He continued to appear in movies until 1923, including silent versions of A Doll's House, he plays Nils Krogstad, and Adam's Rib. He also composed a prize-winning tune called Fiesta Time in Hollywood for a local contest. The article mentions two of his other tunes, Spread Hollywood's Fame with Music, and Just a Home in the Foothills of Hollywood. He took time to write and direct a five-reel promotional picture called The Port of Golden Opportunity for the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, of which he was a founding member. His name appeared in newspapers 30 or 40 times yearly during the 1920s. 
He added radio announcing to his resume. And in November 1928, the Los Angeles Evening Express, in an article entitled, Dispute Over Honors as Fastest Radio Broadcaster. It pits Wedgwood Noel, founder and conductor of the Playgoers Circle, against Curtis Benton, an announcer of the Hollywood American Legion Fights broadcast over station KNX, as to who is the fastest talking radio announcer on the air in America. They were scheduled to go head to head in an impromptu skit for 30 minutes on 23 November. I could not find the follow up story on that. I did find there was an advertisement in the classified section of the Los Angeles Times dated 22 July 1934. It was for an auction of his beautiful furnishings, Persian rugs, and objects of art from his home. In the 1934 voters' rolls, Wedgwood was listed as living at 5233 West 20th Street in Los Angeles. It also told us he was a Democrat. He did some more movie roles after 1934, including Theodora Goes Wild, starring Irene Dunn, Melvin Douglas, and Spring Byington, and the 15-chapter serial starring Ralph Byrd, Smiley Burnett, and Francis X. Bushman. In the 1940 census, Wedgwood and his wife Irma, both aged 62, were living at 1628 South Spaulding Avenue. At some point after this, Wedgwood Noel made his way back to Philadelphia. He started living at the Edwin Forrest Home for retired actors. In his will, Forrest had provided for the creation of a retirement home for actors and actresses, and it was incorporated in 1873. The home was intended to house up to 12 aging and infirm actors who could live at the home free of charge. It initially operated at Forest Country Estate, Springbrook, in Holmesburg, North Philadelphia. In 1828, it was relocated to a manor house in Fairmount Park at 4849 Parkside Avenue. It remained there until 1986, when it was merged with the Lillian Booth Actors Home of the Actors Fund of America in Englewood, New Jersey. In 1951, his second wife, former actress and dancer Irma Stowe Noel, died at age 73. The newspaper obituary said she would be buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, but interment took place at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Rockland section, Lot 188, also known as the Guests of Edwin Forrest Plot. And on 18 June 1957, Wedgwood Noel was found dead of natural causes at the Walnut Hotel, where he had lived for the prior two years. He was 78 years old. The police noted that Mr. Noel had disappeared from the Edwin Forrest home about two and a half years earlier. He was survived by a third wife and three married daughters. He, too, was interred in the Guests of Edwin Forrest plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Next time in the June 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, it's part two of American Medical Fathers, except I get to throw in a mother this time also. Charles Eucharist de Medici Sajou was the last of the Medicis and is thought of today as the American father of endocrinology. 
Chevalier Jackson, senior and junior, were giants in the field of otolaryngology. Chevalier Jackson, senior, is considered the father of tracheobronchoscopy and a collection of the foreign bodies he extracted from throats and windpipes is a highlight of your visit to the Mutter Museum. George McClellan was an accomplished surgeon with a prickly personality who was father of Jefferson Medical College and of General George B. McClellan. Polish immigrant Hilary Kaprowski was a brilliant virologist who demonstrated the world's first effective live polio vaccine before Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. His wife, Irina Kaprowska, was a cytopathologist who helped develop the pap smear with her mentor, Georgius Papanikolaou. I will talk about all five of these Philadelphia physicians in the June episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's within an easy walk of the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kinwood. Parking is available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are now open for their spring and summer hours, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Winter hours, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again, but with limited participants who are willing to follow CDC recommendations for masks. And we still have frequent pay-what-you-wish virtual tours online. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. There is more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog you could read about even more interesting people. If you follow us on Instagram, you get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery Hotspots and Storied Plots, virtual tour number one gives you an overview. And All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube, The Birds and the Bees. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until the next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. 
I also invite you to hear the radio show that I do for WPPMLP in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Much of the information on early theater in Philadelphia came from A History of the American Theater by William Dunlap. It was published by J&J Harper, New York, in 1832. It is available free as a PDF online, though. Wood's autobiography, Personal Recollections of the Stage, Embracing Notices of Actors, Authors, and Auditors During a Period of Forty Years, was published in 1855 by Henry Carey Baird, Philadelphia, also available online. And A History of the Theater in America, From Its Beginning to the Present Time, Volume 2, by Arthur Hornblow, J.B. Lippincott Company, 1919. For Mary Ann Lee, most of the information came from Chronicles of the American Dance, from the Shakers to Martha Graham. It was edited by Paul McGreal, copyright 1948, by Dance Index. In the section called The Classic Dancers, there are three consecutive chapters on Mary Ann Lee, Augusta Maywood, and George Washington Smith. The chapter on Our Mary Ann was written by Lillian Moore. Also, David Germay, the weekend supervisor at Laurel Hill Cemetery, provided me with the information about getting her the grave marker more than 110 years after her death. Oh, and the background music, that was the music from Giselle, performed by Michael Tilson Thomas and the London Symphony Orchestra. Most of the information for Frank Mayo came from The Opera Glass, Volume 3, Number 7, Boston, Massachusetts, July 1896, pages 101 to 105. And the Wedgwood Noel material came from a series of newspaper articles from 1903 to 1957. I found no good summary of his career anywhere online, but I put together what I could from the newspaper articles. See you next time on All Bones Considered. Stay safe, stay well.